I'm an alcoholic, a member of the Mediterranean group. My name is Yisrael. Especially on a day like today, I use my last name just in case I end up in the hospital and you want to visit me. So around these parts, it might not be so hard to describe me in the hospital. But I once went to the hospital to visit a fellow friend in AA and I said, you know, I'm here to see Al. She said, Al who? I said, Big Al. She said, I was really looking for more of a family name. Big Al who drives a truck? Does that help you? Big Al is with Sally. Is any of this getting me anywhere? And she said, you're a friend, huh? And she started laughing. I, um, I'm a big believer in the traditions of Alcoholics Anonymous and, and, uh, and clearly there are places where we're supposed to maintain our anonymity and inside of Alcoholics Anonymous is not one of them. I, I don't believe, but I'm not here to argue with anyone. I'm here to to say thank you, to thank you to Mark for all your hospitality. Uh, Mark has been a wonderful host. I uh, was driven here safely today. I was driven to Niagara Falls uh, and saw the falls. Uh, as an alcoholic, I can't believe that's been happening every day without my knowledge. <laughs> I'm a little upset that no one made me go before. Um, I want, to, uh, I want to say thank you to the whole committee and to the archives committee. I think it's important that we remember where we come from. Somebody said that those who forget are bound to repeat. So I want to remember, and I want the people that came before, I want to remember who came before me. I never want to think for one second that I invented this or I founded this or I did anything with this in in. Innovatively, I just want to be doing what everybody that came before me did because, because quite honest, there are those in the room who will see later in the countdown the giants that came before us and the giants that came before them. Um, I, I, uh, we had a little discussion at a little Friday night meeting we had in the hotel. I want to thank the committee for putting me up in a winery. <laughs> That's a vote of confidence. I didn't know. I... Mark sent the email that I would be staying at the Casablanca Winery Inn, and my wife said, "Is that a good idea?" I, I said, "They can't possibly have enough wine for me." That was nice. Um, I want to thank the. Uh, it doesn't seem so many that. that uh, our fellow members who have experienced an entire psychic change and decided that it was too dangerous to drive today. Those are the truly the healthy ones. Uh, the rest of us were like, I'm going. I pay. I'm ready. What? I don't know. What was the ticket? What did the ticket cost? $20. I'm worth dying for $20, of course. I'm. Risk my life for 20 bucks? Hell yeah. <laughs> On a Sunday morning, why not? I don't get that many opportunities anymore. <laughs> Had a great alcoholic moment in the archive room. There was a, a, a jar of, or bowl of, of candy put out, free candy, I might add. Gumdrops. And a man walked up, he took one, he ate it, and he said, 
You ought to warm those up before you give them to people. <laughs> well, yes, sir. That's why we're here, to get you a warm gumdrop. Let me just <laughs> sit on that for a moment, and you come back in five minutes, and they'll be all warmed up. <laughs> I, um... So I, I just thank you all for coming out. Thank you for... for uh, this is a remarkable thing, all of this. An archive committee. I mean, it's funny that we, you know, got, who knew when we arrived in Alcoholics Anonymous that one day we were going to want to archive that, emo that, that moment, you know what I mean? <laughs> who of us thought, let me save the parking stub to my first AA meeting because someday this might be in the archives, right? <laughs> I mean, if you're new here today, if somehow you got in here and you're thinking, man, Alcoholics Anonymous. How lame is that? <laughs> right? I mean, you really didn't think two weeks ago when you were hammering it back wherever you were hammering it back that, geez, I hope I'm at the Olympia Grand Ballroom in a couple of weeks. <laughs> On a Sunday morning, listening to some freak. <laughs> I want you to know when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, I didn't look like this. I came to Alcoholics Anonymous in early February of 1980. I was a 16-year-old Irish-Italian Catholic kid from Philadelphia. I'm not saying that if you worked the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous... You'll end up an, an Orthodox Jew living in Jerusalem. But it has happened. People fear a lot of stuff happening when they work the steps. Most of it's never going to happen. I had a sponsor... Guy, guy of blessed memory named Clint Hodges, and he was sponsored by Clancy Immelslin. And Clancy, Clint went to Clancy. Clint had grown up in, <coughs> in an evangelical Christian family in Montana. He hated God and religion and everything about it. And he went to Clancy and he said, Clancy, I'm afraid that if I turn my will and life over to the care of God in the third step, God will make me a missionary in China. <laughs> And Clancy said, Clint, do you believe in God? And Clint said, no. And it, Clancy asked, do you speak Chinese? <laughs> no. Why would God make you a missionary in China? You'd be horrible at that. But... Ending up an Orthodox Jew living in Jerusalem has happened. So be careful. <laughs> and take my card. <laughs> I, um, I'm inc incredibly... Um, I like to say when I speak in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I like to think whenever I'm in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, that it is an honor and a privilege to be in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, and particularly 
to speak because it's an honor because Alcoholics Anonymous is not my entire life. I have plenty of things in my life that have nothing to do with the fact that I am a sober alcoholic, except that I only have them because I'm a sober alcoholic. The foundation, the foundation of my life is the fact that I'm a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous. Not that I'm sober, because I was sober when I started drinking. If I had to look for a cause for my drinking, it would be sobriety. I believe I drank because I was sober. So simply getting here and being sober is not the answer. It's the reason. My sponsor likes to say that if, if you have a problem with alcohol, the alcoholics don't have a problem with alcohol. Right? It's not, that's not our problem. Our problem is living without alcohol. My problem is how do I live my life sober without that spring getting tighter and tighter in my gut and then just finally over something, anything, it really doesn't matter, popping and I'm gone and I'm at it again. How do I not do that? How do I live comfortably? How, first of all, how do I go one day without a drink? I did not believe that was possible. I drank in the, in the uh, 70s and 80s. I drank alcohol in liquid form, pill form, powder form, and solid form. I did not know that I was going to end up in Alcoholics Anonymous. Had I known I was going to end up speaking at the Hamilton Archives breakfast, I would have only drank. <laughs> but there was no promise when I was doing the things that I was doing, that I would end up here. There was no sense that I was going to end up safe, sane, and sober in Alcoholics Anonymous. I drank from nine years old to 16 years old. I believe I drank for as long as I possibly could. I believe I drank as much as I possibly could. I could not... I, 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 um, I personally hate the real alcoholic sledgehammer that we use on each other. Um... I stake my drinking to this paragraph that I'm about to read to you. The idea that someday, I'm reading and I'm getting it wrong. The idea that somehow, someday, he will control and enjoy his drinking is the great obsession of every abnormal drinker. The persistence of this illusion is astonishing. Many pursue it to the gates of insanity or death. I know this. If I'm controlling my drinking, I'm not enjoying it. If I'm enjoying it, I'm not controlling it. Period. Go with me for a minute. This is not, and it is Sunday, and let's just say that the story of Noah actually happened. Okay? Just for the sake of this discussion, let's say Noah built an ark. Let's say God told Noah to build an ark. As wacky as that sounds. And Noah built an ark. And when he was done building the ark, he put all the creatures in, right? Two by two by two. We've all read or heard the story somehow in some form. And he saved the world. The entire world. Everybody and everything that wasn't on that ark died. When Noah got back from saving the world, 
Do you know what he did? That's right. He planted a vineyard and got drunk and naked in front of the kids. (laughs) Sounds like alcoholism to me. First thing. Where are you back from, Noah? I just saved the entire world. Well, that's a big deal. Thanks. You're welcome. What you going to do now? Plant a vineyard. What you going to do after that? Get drunk and naked in front of the kids. Sounds like a great idea, Noah. Let's just say that that story is between 3,500 and 5,000 years old. Whether it happened or not, somebody thought it up and wrote it down. Between that day and this, recovery from alcoholism has been available. I always should do the math before I get to this moment. (laughs) What is it, 83 years? 83 years, right? Since 1935. From 5,000 BCE, 5,000 years ago till now, recovery from alcoholism has been available for 83 years. We live in an incredibly small window of time when recovery from alcoholism was available to the human being. And even still, the vast majority of alcoholics will die without ever darkening the door of Alcoholics Anonymous. And without getting into math or statistics or percentages of who worked the program better, them or us, a fair number of us will die after having darkened the door. A fair number of us will be given a seat in a room of Alcoholics Anonymous and at some point after that moment will get up and say, thanks, but no thanks. I'll give it my best shot out there and they will die. Because that's what alcoholics do. They will die ugly, humiliating, painful deaths, both for themselves and the people that have the unfortunate task of loving them. Alcoholism is an ugly, dirty disease, and it trashes lives, drunk or sober. So whenever someone gets to Alcoholics Anonymous... Please, God, let me be the last person to judge whether they are alcoholic. And if I judge them to be non-alcoholic, please, God, let me keep my mouth shut. It's not my job. It's not my business. And please, God, if they say, would you take me through the book, let me say yes. And please, God, let me make room in my life because I owe a debt to Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm not the first person to say that. I read it in Dr. Bob's story. Dr. Bob felt he owed a debt to Alcoholics Anonymous. If he owed a debt to Alcoholics Anonymous, you know I owe a debt to Alcoholics Anonymous. The other thing I love about Dr. Bob's story is he talks about the idea of not much getting over the desire to drink for two and a half years. And you know what he did? In those two and a half years, he didn't drink. He stayed sober. 
He worked with another alcoholic. He founded Alcoholics Anonymous in those two and a half years. I don't think I wanted to drink for... really seriously wanted to drink for 24 hours in a row since I've been here. And I see a lot of people who <coughs> want to drink. And some drink. And some never come back. So however we got here, and however the people will get here to the meetings we go to this week, I want to know that I will be a welcome. It's not my job to decide if they're alcoholic. It's just my job to say, welcome to Alcoholics Anonymous. That's what people did for me. I showed up at Alcoholics Anonymous on the 5th of February, 1980, and a bunch of people sat me down. They gave me my first cup of coffee, an addiction I'll thank them for forever. <laughs> I'm not really addicted to coffee. I just drink it so as to not get a headache. <laughs> I don't have to drink it until noon. But up until noon, it's a choice. A choice I make every day, but a choice nonetheless. A bunch of guys gave me their numbers and a bunch of guys wrote on their cards. One guy, I remember Gordon, he wrote call anytime. He underlined that. He put an exclamation point. He gave me that card. He shook my hand. And I do that. I have cards in my pocket. If you ask for my card, I'll shake your hand. I'll give you my card. And I'll say, you feel free to call me anytime. And I do that because I know he's never going to call. <laughs> That's why I drank. So I wouldn't have to call a stranger in the middle of the night and say, I don't feel good. <laughs> I'm scared. I'm nervous. I'm anxious. I would rather be beaten with a baseball bat on this stage in front of all of you than call someone and say, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know how to get through the day. I, don't, I can't do this. One guy took my number, and he called me. He called me the next day, and he said, Hey, Chris, you want to go to a meeting? I said, Yeah, I didn't want to go to a meeting. <laughs> I wanted to say, I went to AA yesterday. <laughs> you mean I got to go two days in a row? <laughs> but thank God I went to that meeting, because that's the meeting where I got alcoholism. Oh, really? I didn't have alcoholism when I went to that meeting. I came to Alcoholics Anonymous because my best friend Lizanne had come to Alcoholics Anonymous. And Lizanne was the kind of drinker I always wanted to be. We drank in the suburbs of Philadelphia, mainly in a park. And Lizanne would wake up in New York City or on a bus bound for Ohio or in Atlantic City. She got some movement on her drinking. If I drank here, I woke up here. <laughs> Just... Mark back to my feet, stand me up, and that's where I've been drinking. Unless there was a puddle nearby. I might migrate to a puddle. Or make my own. It's really... I mean, people underestimate urination. and It's warm and fuzzy for a long time.
Anyone to think about the horrors that were visited upon a 16-year-old girl while she traversed the Northeast United States in the early 80s and late 70s in, in a blackout? But she got sober, and I saw that happen. I saw something change in her eyes, and when, when I had a hit-and-run accident with a Catholic priest, and uh, which is close to a burning bush as I'll probably ever get, I mean, <laughs> if that's not a direct sign from God, I mean... <laughs> He sent like one of his henchmen, you know, like, he's like the godfather. He wants to talk to you. <laughs> okay. I'll be there in the morning. I went to school the next day and threw up in the hallway, which is not allowed in the Catholic boys' school. They'd be proud of me now, wouldn't they? And there I was. I woke up the next day, I threw up in the school, I went back home, I slept for a couple hours, I woke up and I called Alcoholics Anonymous. Called a number in the phone book, turned out it was a clubhouse called the 319 Club. A woman answered the phone, she said, Alcoholics Anonymous, may we help you? I said, yeah, how do you get into AA? She said, the door. <laughs> but you know, we don't need that kind of attitude in our phone workers. <laughs> She said, if you get here by 12.30, I'll take you to a board meeting. I thought, a board meeting? I haven't even, I'm not even a member yet. What kind of shoddy organization are these people running? I got there around 2.30. When I got to AA, there were three guys in AA. There were the 350-year-old Russian guys from the Dan and Yogurt commercials in the 70s. Ago. Barely move, and then they'd eat the yogurt, they'd do backflips and cartwheels. Well, those three guys were in AA when I got here, and I looked at them and I thought, if I don't drink for as long as they've been alive, I can't have a drink for 134 years. <laughs> and then that afternoon, a bunch of people gave me their numbers as I described. And, and this wasn't like today, kids. And I, um, believe me, I, when I got sober, I hated when the old timers would say, ah! <laughs> When we got clean, we didn't have hospitals and detox. Good guy in a closet for a week, took him out, took him to a meeting. <laughs> right? They're always going on like that. Cups, we didn't use cups. We put the grounds in our mouth and drank hot water. <laughs> cups. <laughs> cups. But this was back in the day when someone calling someone any time meant you had to figure out when they were home. Their phone wasn't in their pocket, it was in their kitchen. You could take the phone with you, but you had to take the whole house too. And so Paul called me, and I went to Alcoholics Anonymous the second day. And on the second day, I sat in the Paola Young People's Beginners Meeting, and I listened to a bunch of people talk about themselves. And at the beginning of the meeting, they went around the room and everyone said they were an alcoholic. And that was freaking me out. And they got to Paul. Paul was the second to last person and I was the last person. And Paul said, my name is Paul. And he didn't say he was an alcoholic. Or I didn't hear it anyway. And I said, my name is Chris. And I sat and listened to those people for an hour and, and I caught alcoholism right then and there. My friend Scott Redman of Blessed Memory used to say alcoholism is a contagious disease. You catch it through your ears. I listen to you talk about your lives and your feelings and your emotions and your spiritual condition and what happened to you when you drank and the things that you were willing to do in order to drink 
And I thought to myself, God, if they're alcoholic, I'm alcoholic. And by the end of the meeting, I was saying, I'm an alcoholic. That's what's wrong with me. Believe me, in my family, if you come through the mental illnesses with alcoholism, you are doing very well. <laughs> in my family, having alcoholism is like going to Harvard. <laughs> really. You come out with a simple case of alcoholism, you're like top of the class. But I went and I started, you know, and Paul became my first sponsor and that, be, and, and that connection to Paul became, I jumped, I know I jumped because I didn't open the book yet. I talked about why this is an honor and I want to just for a second go back and talk about why this is a privilege. Dr. Silkworth writes, and he's writing about Bill in the doctor's opinion, in, in the introduction to the doctor's opinion. He's talking about many years ago, one of the leading contributors of this book came under the care of our hospital, and while here he acquired some ideas with which he put into practical application at once. And then here's the line that I love. Later he requested the privilege of being allowed to tell his story to other patients. That's what I'm being given the privilege to do this morning, to tell my story to the other patients. And then the doctor's beautiful here. He says, here, and with some misgiving, we consented. In other words, they thought it was a bad idea, but figured, how much damage can they do? And that's why we're here. For all the reasons. Because Abby went to Bill, because Roland went to Abby, because Dr. Young couldn't heal Abby, uh, Roland... Because Dr. Young was humble enough to know that he could not provide the transformational emotional experience that Roland needed to stay sober so that he could get Ebby out of jail, so that Ebby could go to Bill, so that Bill could bottom out one more time and go to Towns Hospital, so that Bill could work with people for six months and no one would get sober except Bill, so that Bill could go to Bob in early May of 1935. Isn't it remarkable that the founding date of Alcoholics Anonymous is not when the first member got sober, but when the second member got sober. It's, it's about two. It's not about one. It's about two. What do I need? I need my book, and I need another alcoholic to talk to. I need... That, Paul and I, Paul who talked me, took me to my second meeting, Paul and I are a power greater than me. You said, you don't want to die of alcoholism? You want to stop drinking? You have to access a power greater than yourself. Paul and I are a power greater than me. Mark and I are a power greater than me. Hoyt and I are a power greater than me. Lenny and I are a power greater than me. That's what I need in my life to not drink today. Access to a power greater than myself. And me and any one of you are a power greater than me. And that's one of the reasons I'm still an Alcoholics Anonymous. Sure, me and the gas station attendant are a power greater than me. But it's going to take some work till we realize that until we get on the same page. Sure, me and the, the, the Bartender or waitress at the Casablanca Winery and are a power greater than me. Me and anyone else are a power greater than me. But here we're attuned to that. 
We're, we're, we're starting out. There's not going to be a lot of having to get, you know, kind of synchronized. And also, my interactions with them, none of them are dying of alcoholism. Here I come and I can be of service. When I got to alcoholism, Gordon wasn't two weeks sober. He wasn't reading out of a manual trying to figure out how to give out his number in 12-step. Paul was sober some five years at that point. Five years. 26, 27 years old. Five years. And he was in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous on the day I needed to meet someone who knew how to stay sober. So yes, the new people are, I don't know if they're the most important person in the room, they're incredibly important person, but I don't want to turn the program over to them. <laughs> it's not their job, quite honestly, nor are they equipped to do it. That's why I, I want to be here. That's why I want to be here. And so that privilege and that that misgiving and that action, which was one of a series of actions, which finally brought Bill and Bob together. And Bob stopped drinking. Right? There's a, I, I once heard his son speak, Bob Jr., who was sitting in the back of the car when Bob turned to Ann and said, we'll give this bird 15 minutes. And they stayed five hours. I know that feeling. I know that feeling of sitting with someone and talking to them and the time flies by and yet it doesn't seem to, the clock doesn't seem to move at all. I know that feeling. I know that feeling of, of both being told that there is a, a solution. I don't have to live like this. And I know the feeling of looking in another man's eyes, another person's eyes, and seeing that they're learning that for the first time, for the first moment. They are finally getting the idea that they don't have to die this way any longer. I got a lot of amazing stuff in my life. None more amazing than that. There is something in a room when we are gathered together that is not in that room when we're not there. Go to the meeting early. Stay late. Sit in the room by yourself. The room feels different when we are gathered together. And when we are gathered together for this, for recovery from alcoholism, it is different than we are, when we are just gathered together in general. What's amazing to me is the feeling how different the room can feel from the regular meeting where we are each and every one of us equal in each other's eyes and here to save each other and to, to grow together. We are, we are like those who are you know, recovered from a ship to 15 minutes later when the business meeting starts. And suddenly we're oppositional and reactionary and defensive and we're right and we are just and we will be heard. It's amazing how unspiritual we can get so quickly. And we do it time and time again, city after city, month after month. No wonder more and more groups have steering committees. Because then it's only like eight people being oppositional to each other. Anyway. So I came to Alcoholics Anonymous and I stopped drinking soon thereafter. I stopped drinking that day. 
snorted a little alcohol in powder form about eight days later, but I wasn't going to change my sobriety date because this was Alcoholics Anonymous and kind of attached already to that first sobriety date. It's a long story and I won't go into it, but it was an important sobriety date. And so, I don't know, eight or nine months later, I moved my date to the 14th of February, not realizing that that was Valentine's Day in the United States. I don't know if it is here. It's not in Israel, thank God. So there's no competition on my birthday. My wife's Israeli. She doesn't even know what Valentine's Day is and I haven't told her. Because the 14th of February is my birthday, after all, and should be celebrated as such. So when it rolled around and I was 17, and, oh, that's so cute, you got sober on Valentine's Day, you're so cute. I wasn't willing to give up another day to move it to the 15th, so I was stuck. And, and I worked with Paul, you know, and I, and I was a junior year, in, my junior year in high school, and I, my life started to change. I started to meet new people. I, apparently there was a whole group of people at school that didn't drink alcoholically or smoke behind the dumpsters all day or, you know, do any number of horrible things I was doing. And, and they were living great lives. And I met a lot of them and my life started to grow and open and expand. And I ended up visiting Florida and then moving to Florida upon graduation and, and getting really active in Alcoholics Anonymous there, getting involved in service. You know, someone said earlier that, that the, you know, the the volunteering is as slow as usual, which is great because the, if, you're, if you're into this, you can do whatever you want here because there's always a job open. And if it's not open this week, it'll be open next week. So you're lucky. If you're one of those people that wants to be enthusiastic about your involvement in Alcoholics Anonymous, there's always a place to do something because... because they don't, you know, I remember I was, you know, they told me to get a commitment and I knew clearly that they're to take advantage of the newcomer. I can see that a mile away. I'm not going to be taken advantage of. I'm not getting a commitment. And so I didn't. And then I finally did. I got a coffee commitment and, and it turned out I'm a great coffee maker. I'm one of the best coffee makers in AA, it turns out. I didn't even know. <laughs> Turns out I make excellent coffee. A few months later, it turns out everyone is incredibly jealous of an excellent coffee maker. And they start talking about rotation, which I know is a buzzword for let's get the excellent coffee maker out of his job. Because we're going to get used to excellent coffee and it's going to be really hard when he finally decides to do something else. And they threw me right out of being coffee maker. And uh, it was years later. It was, I was probably about uh, 12 years sober and I was living in Los Angeles and I was going to a Sunday night meeting called the Sundowners Group. And the Sundowners Group was basically populated by really rich people or really good-looking people, or really famous people. Pretty much everyone there was one of the three. I was none of the three. And I was really uncomfortable there. And I decided I would leave. Because I'm 12 years sober and I don't need to be uncomfortable in my own skin. I've worked really hard as a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, done a lot of step work, done a lot of spiritual growth. I'm going to take care of me and I'm going to leave. 
And I don't know. Maybe that would have worked. I don't know. Because just as I was going out the door, another voice in my head said, what are you doing? You don't leave a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous because you're uncomfortable. You get a job. And I thought, yeah. I remember hearing at the Florida State Convention when I was about a year and four months sober, a guy named Franklin Williams from Olive Branch, Mississippi. And Franklin was a little, it was tiny, 112 or something. And he had this thick southern accent and he said, my name is Franklin Williams and I'm a member of the Olive Branch, Mississippi group of Alcoholics Anonymous. The Olive Branch group is the best damn group in AA. And then he said, if you don't think your home group is the best group in AA, don't go joining another one and screwing that up too. <laughs> Move to the front of the room and take responsibility. And so that's what I did. I got a job. I got the assistant candle buyer's job. California gives out birthday cakes every week. Everybody gets their own candles. That doesn't necessitate two people buying candles. I think either one of us was fully capable of buying all the candles, but we had two people. I was the co-buyer. And then after a while, I was the buyer. And then I moved up to the lighter. And then the cake holder. I was ripping through that organization. And sure enough, I lost track of what had made me uncomfortable. And some, like about a year and two years later, I was standing on the podium. I was the secretary of the Sundowners Group, which in California is the highest job you can have in a group, and, uh, or the lowest, depending on how you see the group. And there I was, shushing the people and wishing they would go to their seats and complaining about the smokers and, you know, the stuff we do. And while I'm shushing them and wishing they'd be in their seats so we could start the meeting on time for once and give the speaker their full deserved time, it suddenly occurred to me. I'm not happy with these people. But I'm not intimidated by them either. I am just a man among men. I'm not rich, I'm not good looking, and I'm not famous. But I'm a member of this group. And I'm equal to everyone here. And I would have not learned that had I walked out the door. I might have gotten a massage that day, or gone to a spa, or I don't know what. But I wouldn't have learned that I was equal to all those people. I would have left with the feeling I had when I went out the door which was that somehow they were better. And so, maybe you're thinking, so what, dude? Maybe that's so what? I don't know. It was a lesson for me. It was along the way. It was right about the time when I went to my sponsor, who was a, a big meditator. I, I've always alternated between poke you in the chest sponsors and call to you to tell you they love you sponsors. And I was on a call you to tell you I loved you sponsor. And... and uh, and he, he was a big meditator, and, and I, I don't mention that, except that because, the reason I mention that is because he, what he told me is after we, you know, we were working and talking for a while, he said, you know, I, I really think you have to have another second step experience. You have to kind of come to believe in a power greater than yourself, you know, because uh, 
because you need something new there. You need something different, something more. And I, I was thinking about it this morning. I think about it a lot because I really believe that me and any one of you is enough on any given day to keep me sober. And it was certainly enough for me to start this journey 38 years ago. But that's not enough to... I mean, the way I like to think about it is, like, when I got sober, I lived in a... Well, when I first moved out of my... Well, when I first got sober, I lived in my parents' house. That limited the amount of things I had to do. Right? And now I live in my own house. I can't, I can't say, well, the, I'm just going to do what I used to do when I first got sober, because that was enough then, and I want it to be enough now. I couldn't go to my wife and say, you know what, honey, I, like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pretty much top out at making the bed. I don't really, you know, that's what I used to do when I lived at home, and that's what I feel comfortable doing now. That was my first higher power, and this is my higher power today. It just wouldn't work. Timothy Leary used to say, if you're in, in, in discussing LSD, he would say, if you... He'd say, LSD is rocket fuel. If you're a Volkswagen, don't take rocket fuel. But it's the, diff it's the opposite here. I have a big, rich, full, authentic life today. It's not going to be powered by that little bit of, mm, that I had 38 years ago. I've had to grow this thing. I'm not saying become an Orthodox Jew. I'm not saying come to, um, you know, visit my home group. You can speak at my home group. Robbie did. But, you know, I'm not asking you to become me. There's no room in my life for you. <laughs> Barely find parking now. I'm saying become you. I'm saying Alcoholics Anonymous offered me, me. Not for the sake of me being me and having me and aren't I great? So that I could be an agent for my employer. That's so that I could be of service to the God of my understanding and my fellow human beings. Right? I ran around AA for years saying, well, what, God, what does God want me for me? What does God want me to do? What does God want me to do? What does God... You know, what does God want me to do? It says clearly in the book what God wants me to be, do, and be. God wants me to be happy, joyous, and free, and of maximum service to God and my fellows. Realize who's missing in that statement? Me. But I'm not supposed to be of maximum service to me? No. I'm supposed to be of maximum service to you. The downside of that means you're supposed to be at maximum service to me. <laughs> so we can talk after the meeting because I have a list of things I'd like you to do. We have this, I have this friend in L.A., in, LA, in Jerusalem, and, and she drives me crazy because she's always saying, AA is a cult. And it just makes me mad, like insane mad, not angry, because I don't get angry because I've dealt with my feelings through the steps. <laughs> Sometimes I have a negative emotion, but it's only so that I'm relatable to others. <laughs> I'm right, and then sometimes 
I'm wrong, but I admit that I'm wrong, which makes me right. And I always say to her, yeah, we're a cult. We're the only cult in the world that makes you get in touch with your family and won't take your money. Mark pointed out this morning, we have cult-like tendencies. The veneration of our leaders and founders. I don't know. I'm proud. Did you go to the archives room? I'm proud to be in line with those people. I'm proud to be the extension of Bill Wilson and Bob Smith and Dr. Silkworth and Sam Shoemaker, Reverend Shoemaker, and all those people. Marty Mann and the early women of Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm, I'm, I'm made, made, maybe, I don't know. I'm proud to be able to be here today. I'm proud to be able to say thank you to Alcoholics Anonymous. Not just by doing this, but by going to my regular meetings, by answering my phone when it rings, by going out with the new guy and reading the book, by saying, this is how I got sober. This is what I did. These are the actions I took. You know? My, my sponsor sometimes tells a story which I first heard from a guy named Bob D. And there's a guy who's an alcoholic, and he's out in the ocean, and he's paddling, he's, he's treading water, but he can feel that he can't see anything for as far in any direction. And he knows he just can't paddle water forever, he can't tread water forever, he's going to have to, he's getting tired. And suddenly, far on the horizon, he sees two guys, and they're paddling towards him. They pull up right next to him, and they don't have a boat. They're just sitting there paddling. And they say, hey man, get in. And he says, but, but you don't have a boat. They say, just get in, man. Get in and start paddling. You'll be fine. And he's about to get in. But then suddenly he sees a big, shiny ocean liner pull up. And it says, I don't know, rehab. I don't know what it says. Easier, softer way. <laughs> I really don't know. Maybe it says financial security and success through workaholic-like habits. <laughs> I think this vote said something like rehab and biofeedback, nutritional consulting and exercise, group therapy. And they said, come on board. And he said to the two guys, see ya. And he got on the ship. And man, for 30 days it was golden. And then at the end of 30 days they said, all right, you're done. Off the ship. What? Off the ship? You're, you're done. It's over. It's a 30-day program. <laughs> and into the water he went. And off went the ship. And he's paddling water and he's thinking, I don't know how long I can... Here come the guys. <laughs> get in the invisible boat, man. Are you kidding? No, get in. And he gets in. Now paddle. And he paddles. And sure enough, he doesn't sink. But it's crazy. It's crazy, right, what he's doing. It's just crazy. So he stops paddling. And he starts to sink. 
And they say, man, you got to paddle. If you don't paddle, you're going to sink. And he can't get over it. There's no boat. And they don't care that there's no boat. They just say, keep paddling. We're on the invisible boat, my friends. This is the invisible boat. There is no reason why what we do should recover us from alcoholism. Neither recovered nor recovering should be sustainable with what we do. And yet, we don't sink. And we pull other people into the boat with us. And we paddle the invisible boat. And we survive. More than survive, we prosper. I, um, one other thing I want to read. This is from The Language of the Heart, which is one of the best books in AA. It's a grapevine publication. It's the collected writings of Bill from, from his grapevine writings. And um, this is a story that, uh, or a piece that um, he wrote in, uh, I will tell you in one minute, in 1957. In December of 1957, he wrote this and it's titled The Greatest Gift of All. The greatest gift that can come to anybody is a spiritual awakening. Without doubt, this would be the certain verdict of every well-recovered alcoholic in AA's entire fellowship. So then what is this spiritual awakening, this transforming experience? How can we receive it and what does it do? To begin with, spiritual awakening is our means of finding sobriety. To us of AA, sobriety means life itself. We know that a spiritual experience is the key to survival from alcoholism and that for most of us, it is the only key. We must awake or we die. So we do awake and we are sober. Then what? Is sobriety all that we are to expect of a spiritual awakening? Again, the voice of AA speaks, no. Sobriety is only a bare beginning. It is only the first gift of the first awakening. If more gifts are to be received, our awakening must go on, has to go on, and it does go on. We find that bit by bit we can discard the old life, the one that did not work, for a new life that can and does work under any conditions, whatever regardless of worldly success or failure, regardless of pain or joy, regardless of sickness or health, or even of death itself. A new life of endless possibilities can be lived if we are willing to continue our awakening. And I think that for me, that's what Alcoholics Anonymous allows me. In my experience in Alcoholics Anonymous, through the continued application of the 12 steps and the continued application of all the implications of the 12 steps, the, the awakening has continued. My life has continued to transform. I could not. When you said to me when I was new in Alcoholics Anonymous, you can have anything, anything beyond your wildest dreams. If you had made me ask for what I wanted then, I would have a lifetime supply of Marlboro <laughs> and a brand new Camaro. Which would mean I would have a lifetime supply of cigarettes I don't smoke anymore. 
and a 38-year-old car. <laughs> That's as big as it got for me. Over the moon, biggest shot, that was it. Have anything in the world, cigarettes and a new car. I wouldn't have known to ask for the life I have today. I wouldn't have known to ask for the, the way my life was going to manifest. And the beautiful thing for me is that Alcoholics Anonymous worked when I was Chris Campbell, 16-year-old, Irish-Italian Catholic kid from Philly, as well as it works for 54-year-old, father of four, husband, Israeli citizen, Yisrael Campbell, Orthodox Jew living in Jerusalem. This book, I don't have to adjust it. I don't have to read it backwards. I don't have to turn it upside down. I don't have to ask for a new book to be written. This is not the only spiritual book in my life. This is not the only textbook in my life. But it's the, it's the one that gives me all the others. For me. I don't know how Alcoholics Anonymous works for you. And I'm not judging how Alcoholics Anonymous works for you. Only because I don't know how it works for you. If I knew, then I would judge. But <laughs> I'm blessed to be in a room that I can't judge any of your programs. Because I don't know what you're not doing. <laughs> Given a week or a month, I could probably judge everyone in this room. That's the blessed part of being the invited speaker from out of town. No resentments. But if I weren't staying past tomorrow, it wouldn't take long. Isn't it amazing to me? It's amazing. Right? Steps one through nine is all new material. This is the recovery process. One through nine. Nothing is repeated one through nine. Right? And man, you do so many things. You admit you're powerless over alcohol. You come to believe in a power greater than yourself. God! That can help you stay sober. You turn your life and will over to the care of God. You write an inventory. You, you, you go into that basement and you pull out the musty boxes and the dead rats and the dirty diapers you forgot to throw away and all that stuff. And you clean out the house and it's clean and you take it to someone else and you say, look at all this mess that I made. And they say, yeah, I made the same mess, man. You go to God and you say, I don't want these defects of character anymore. I want you to have them. I want to be of service to you. And, and you go and make amends. And you not only apologize. I mean, I was young. I made, a, I made amends to my family several times. One time, I, I forget how it got back to me, but my mother, I was like a letter writer amend guy. So I wrote another series of letters to my mom and my dad and my sister and my mom called my sister and said, what, what is this? And she goes, you know, every few years he writes us a letter apologizing for being an asshole. <laughs> and then he acts like an asshole for another few years. <laughs> so we do that. But, but, you know, I mean, that stuff is amazing, too. My first job sober, I was a... A petroleum exchange engineer for the Exxon Corporation. I pumped gas. <laughs> at Winwood, Winwood Exxon, which is a little gas station at the corner of Winwood and Lancaster, and it was owned by a guy named Lou Batista, who was, if not in the mafia, I don't know why. 
If he wasn't in the mafia, it was because he was in the witness protection plan <laughs> for having been in the mafia. Like the guy... You know what I mean? And so I, I used to... There were ways you could... I, stealing is a strong word. There was ways you could appropriate funds that were destined for the Exxon Corporation to your own pocket. And there were somewhere, you know, you just wouldn't turn the pump off. In those days it was on and off and you'd, you'd almost turn it off but not quite for someone that bought, say, $2 or $3 worth of gas and then the next person would start at $3 and who really knows if their car takes $17 or $20 and, you know, and you'd make a little money that way. And Lou didn't really keep track of the oil, so you'd sell a few oils, quarts of oil for him and a few quarts for yourself and... You had to leave a hundred dollar, uh, you know, for the guy in the morning. And the guy in the morning was a guy named John who'd been there longer than Lou. So no one was going to accuse John of stealing if his bank was a little short. So you could take kind of dinner money off the bank. You do that and it adds up, right? And you get sober and, and you're sober already. I mean, but you get sober by that. I mean, start living sober and um, you get a sponsor and you work the steps and you've moved to Florida where it's warm and sunny and you're going home to Philadelphia and your sponsor, who's a Baptist turned Catholic, which means he's a rigid guy. <laughs> like he started out rigid and then got like foreign rigid. You know what I mean? Like, God, he was so... He, I remember when I started my fourth step, I showed up with like every fourth step guide node to man. You know, the Hazleton guide, the... Oh, every... N.A. was writing their literature at the time and they had a, like a... 600-page four-step guide with a whole section on bestiality. And, you know, <laughs> then word went out, don't read that, man, it'll kill you. And, and you know, I showed up with everything but the big book. And, and uh, John was like, well, where's the book? I was like, well, I don't know. He's like, well, if it's good enough for Bill Bob and the first hundred members, it's certainly good enough for you. And I thought, okay, but Mrs. Jones? <laughs> You know, like, we, anyway, so I, I was going home and I made a commitment to make these amends. One of them was to Lou. I was going to go to Lou and I was going to tell him that I had sold, stolen several hundred, probably around $500 worth of merchandise from him and that I was going to, you know, make amends. And uh, I got to Philly and it was a cold, rainy day, not quite this icy, but cold, sleety, cold, wet rain and... I went to the station and said hi to all the mechanics and guys and I asked where Lou was and they pointed out to the island he was pumping gas. It's a bad day when the owner pumps the gas. Especially when it's cold and wet. And he comes in, he's shaking off his coat and he says, why is it always the old guys? Why do the old guys always mouth off me? If some young guy said that, I would punch him in the face. And I thought, I'm going to make amends? <laughs> well, actually I thought, I'm not going to make amends. And then I thought, you know, I'm going to get back to Florida and it's going to be warm. We're going to be standing at the Pompano Beach Workshop Group and it's going to be Tuesday night and we're going to be in short sleeves and it's going to be 65, 70 degrees and it's going to be hard to explain to John just how cold it was, how wet it was, how angry he was. And really just out of a sense that I didn't want to ask, tell John I hadn't made the amends, I thought I'm going to make the amends. And I asked Lou if I could talk to him and we went outside and we stood in front of the open hood of a car and he was on the side and I was right flash with the grill and flush with the grill and, and I thought I'm just going to talk until he punches me in the face. 
and I start I explain to him what I had done in the system and how I turned the pump off without turning the pump off and how I sold the quarts of oil and how I shorted John's bank and and he hasn't punched me in the face yet. And I get to the end of the story and he goes, Well I said I think I owe you about five hundred dollars and maybe I said even a higher figure and then I said uh but but I can't pay you all that. I, I can give you twenty dollars tonight and pay you twenty dollars a month until I'm done. And he still hasn't punched me in the face. And I open my eyes and <laughs> he's looking at me and he says, I know exactly what you're trying to do here. I'm a member of Gamblers Anonymous. And I thought, my God, that's amazing. I mean, I was touched to my soul. And then he said, in, in fact, he reiterated, how much do you think it is? I, I think I said 500, maybe I said 750. And he said, I'll tell you what, let's, let's just make it 200. I'll take your 20 now and you send me 20 a month until you've paid me $200. I just felt like a, such a relief, such a moment of connection to him and to the universe and to Alcoholics Anonymous and to my sponsor and to all of you. And then I thought, just the very next thought, you know, if you were going to cut it from 500 to 200, <laughs> you could have just as easily gone to zero. <laughs> it took that long, literally a breath. You know, I find $20 on the ground and I say, thank you. And then I say, you know, it could have been 100 <laughs> That's how long it lasts for me, you know. So we go through this process, right, and we go through one through nine, and, we're, and you would think, I would think, at the end of nine, well, what's left? I mean, we've just done all this work. It's just right on to spiritual growth, right? It's just right on to more God. Like, let's bring it on, prayer and meditation, but it's not. The very first thing we redo in, in the step work is resentment. Because I don't know how they knew. How did Bill know? Have you ever met a stockbroker? I mean, I'm sure there are some here, and I'm not talking about you guys. They're the most selfish, self-centered... <laughs> I've never met more... I mean, I lived in New York in the early 80s and all these guys in finance, were, they would have killed their mothers to make another sale. You know? And here's this guy. And, and people from Ohio? Have you ever met anyone from Ohio? <laughs> they're barely human. I mean, they're... I don't mean the ones that are in Ohio from Ohio here. I mean the other ones. And these two guys, a proctologist, a proctologist with shaky hands. That's going to bring in an interesting clientele, isn't it? These two guys gave us this, and, and the very first repeat is, is resentment because we're human beings. We're not spiritual. We are spiritual beings also, but we are human. First and foremost, we are human. First and foremost, we are no one among us has been able to maintain anything like perfect adherence to these principles. No one. Not Bill. Not Bob. Not Bob. No, 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 not A number three. Not Cliff, your dear Cliff, who I'm sure is an amazing man, not, but not been able to maintain anything like 
perfect adherence. So the first thing we need to do when we start on it, okay, we cleaned it all up, now let's move forward. We're going to step on toes. We're going to get resentments. We're going to control. We're going to, yeah. It doesn't say, I said earlier, be of service, be of maximum service, but it doesn't say that. It says fit ourselves to be of maximum service. Fitting ourselves means that we don't do it naturally. It takes work. Continuing, ongoing work to fit ourselves to be of maximum service. The other line that I love, which is on page 85, is that line where it says that we're given a daily reprieve. That's the other reason I'm still an Alcoholics Anonymous. Because I have a daily reprieve. I can only stay sober today for today. I can't. You know what? It's Sunday. I don't have much planned. I'm going to get in all my AA for the week. I like to hit four meetings a week, so I'm going to hit four today and be good for the rest of the week. That's not how my daily reprieve works. My daily reprieve works on a daily basis. You know, like they don't go to, they don't go to the priest and say, man, you've been saying Mass every day for 60 years. Why do you still say daily Mass? They don't go to, to, the, the, to um, what's that swimmer guy and say, you've trained long enough. Why do you still swim every day? Nobody asks that, but they come to you in AA and they say, why do you still go to AA? <laughs> Then they see how I live and they say, maybe you should go more. <laughs> maybe you're not going enough. Maybe they have another 12 steps you could use. <laughs> so it's a daily reprieve contingent upon the maintenance of my spiritual condition. What I'm responsible for is not my spiritual condition. I always read that for, for 35 years and I read... What I heard in my head was, you have a daily reprieve as long as you're in fit spiritual condition. That's not what it says. It says I have a daily reprieve contingent upon the maintenance. I'm responsible for the maintenance. I sweep the floors. I polish the bar. I take the trash out. That the room is ultimately clean is not my responsibility. I say my prayers in the morning. I call my sponsees. I call my sponsor. I reach out to others. I say yes when asked. That's what I'm responsible for. Each of those steps along the way, but ultimately not the condition at the end. And for me, that's incredibly powerful. I'm going to tell one quick story and then I'll stop. It's a story about the Baal Shem Tov, who was the founder of Hasidic Judaism, the guys that look like me. And he lived in the late 1700s. And when, by then, the, Judaism had become kind of stagnant and, and um, um, you know... Frozen, I'm not fossilized. It was stuck. And he came in and he and he believed that 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 we should express our belief in God through laughing and dancing and singing, doing all the things we're asked to do, but also with joy. To do it with great joy. And 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 when he was dying, he gathered all his followers together, his Hasidim, his guys, and he said he gave them each a job. Big guys got the big jobs. Cliff, big job. Mark, big job. Hoyt, big job. Lenny, big job. Then they got to the little guys like me. And there was this one hostage that just loved them so much who hadn't gotten a job. And finally he was called in and the Baal Shem Tov said, your job is to go throughout Europe 
they were in the Ukraine, the Carpathian Mountains. Goes throughout Europe and tells us stories of our life and our work. The guy thought, you know, as we sometimes do in AA, like, that's not a great job. <laughs> so his first question was, for how long? And the Baal Shem Tov said, you'll know when to stop. You'll, you'll get it. It'll, you'll get it. And so he went out and he started telling the stories of the Baal Shem Tov. And that's what he did. He crisscrossed Europe. He was the storyteller of the Baal Shem Tov. He spread the word about the Baal Shem Tov through the stories of the Baal Shem Tov. And one day he woke up and he thought, I think I'm done. I just feel done. And then he heard there was an Italian nobleman paying gold ducats to hear new stories of the Baal Shem Tov. And he thought, maybe I'm not done, done. <laughs> little cash. Nothing wrong with a little cash. And he makes his way to the nobleman's house. And the nobleman brings him in and sits him down. The nobleman is happy to see him. And he suddenly can't think of a single story. He just stares at the guy. Can't think of a single story. Sits there the whole day. Not a single story. The guy finally says, look, get some food. Get some rest. Play tennis. Whatever. Next day, nothing. Three days he sits there, he can't think of it. Finally he says, i got to go. This is all I do. I am the storyteller of the Baal Shem Tov and I can't think of a single story. I'm out of here. The guy doesn't want to let him go, but he lets him go and he's making his way down the path to the village. He thinks of one story, seemingly inconsequential, seemingly insignificant. And he makes his way back and he says, I'm not going to take your money. I just want, you know, I just want to prove to you that I am who I say I am. And he told him the following story. One spring season, the Baal Shem Tov said, get the horses ready, we're going to Turkey. Now, Turkey wasn't a great place for the Jews at Easter. You can imagine why. And he said, I don't think it's a good idea. And the Baal Shem Tov said, get the horses ready, we're going. And they made their way there. And he, the little Chassid thought, okay, as soon as we get there, we'll lay low in the ghetto. We'll hide until after Easter. Everything will be okay. They get there. Sure enough, the Jews are batting down in the ghetto. The Baal Shem Tov walks in, throws open the shutters that look out on the town square, just where the Christians are having their Easter Mass. And he says, go get the bishop. And the chassid says, the, the guy with that pointy hat and the stick, get the bishop? And he says, get the bishop. I don't think he doesn't look like he's ready to come. I says, get the bishop. And he makes his way down. And somehow he gets to the bishop. And, and the bishop says, okay. He explains that Boston Tov wants to speak to him. He says, after the mass, I'll come in and speak to him. He does. They sit in the back room for three hours. The Boston comes out and says, get the horses ready. We're going home. And he says, the horses are already ready. And they make their way back, and, and it's a, that's the end of the story. And before he can apologize one more time to the nobleman for telling him this inconsequential, insignificant story, the nobleman stops him. He looks up, the Hasid looks up, and the guy's crying. His whole attitude and outlook on life have changed. Before he can speak, he says, I was that bishop. I grew up in a long line of rabbinic, fa a rabbinic family, a long line of rabbis, and... The persecution of our own people was so much that I converted to Christianity. The Christians so loved that after some time they made me their bishop. And I went along with the persecution of my people. And I knew that when the Baal Shem Tov wanted to speak to me, I had to speak to him. And I asked him if ever I could be forgiven and I could be healed. And he said, go live a life of quiet, good deeds. And if ever anyone comes and tells your story, you'll know that you've been forgiven and you've been healed. He said, you came to me three days ago and you couldn't tell my story. I recognized you immediately, but you didn't see me. And now you tell this story. And in telling your story, I hear my story. And I say to you that it's here in Alcoholics Anonymous, more than anywhere else in the world for me, that I hear my story told. And you are the people that tell it. And when you tell my story, I know that I've been forgiven. And I've been healed.
So I implore you, please, please come back and tell my story again. Thank you.